the fourth or fifth grade, kickstart is underway. You want to follow Angie in the back here. So the fourth or fifth graders in the house, you're dismissed to kickstart right now. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2 in just a moment. So if you brought your Bible or if you have it on your phone, if you'd like to follow along, 1 Samuel chapter 2 is where I'm going to be. We began last week a four-week series on the prophet Samuel, who has next to Jesus the best name in the entire Old Testament. And so we are studying uh, the prophet Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 2 in just a minute. Now, before we get there, I want to kind of talk a little bit some background information that might help us with the story of Samuel. Just kind of put things in perspective in historical context that hopefully then when we get to the story, you'll go, oh, well, that makes a whole lot more sense. And so uh, I don't want to lose you, but I'm going to do just a little bit of a history lesson. So uh, let me share with you just a little bit of a background before heading into 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm going to start with, there was a time in the nation of Israel where they were enslaved in the land of Egypt. You might remember those stories in the Old Testament where uh, after um, Joseph died, the Israelites were taken captive and enslaved in, in Egypt. And they remained enslaved for a period of 400 years. And then God raised up a guy named Moses to be the one who will lead Israel out of Egypt. Here's Moses' yearbook picture we have. So here's what he looked like. And Moses' job was to go to the king of Egypt that we call Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, God told me to tell you to let his people go so they go and worship the Lord. And Pharaoh said, nope, ain't going to do it. This is great labor. It's free. Like, they're not going anywhere. And so what happens is a contest breaks out between God and really the Egyptian gods. And I can go into that to great length. But it's, it comes in the form of plagues. I don't know if you've heard the ten plagues that were on Egypt. And so what happens is there's this contest between God and the Egyptian gods. And it manifests in the tenth plague, the worst plague. And it was that the firstborn of every Egyptian home and field would die. So imagine in one night, throughout the entire nation of Egypt, everyone in their home and in the field, the firstborn was dead. Well, that was enough to spark the Pharaoh to say, get out right now. We cannot endure any more of God's plagues. And so he actually lets the Israelites go free under the leadership of Moses. And then he has second thoughts. <laughs> I think it's, you know what, on second thought, I've changed my mind. But at this point, the Israelites have gone out of Egypt and they were stuck at the Red Sea. I don't know if you remember the story of the Red Sea. And so what God does is miraculously... He parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites get to go through, and then the Egyptians come right behind them, and God moves the Red Sea back and drowns the entire Egyptian army. And then after that, the Israelites, for, they, they went on a long hike, is what it was. They hiked for three months until they came to the place called Mount Sinai. Now, how many remember, what happened on Mount Sinai? Do you remember the importance of Mount Sinai? you remember? Yeah, this is where Moses received the Ten Commandments. So Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and God is giving him ten commandments. Well, back at the camp, so to speak, the Israelites, impatient, decided to put together a golden calf, and they worshipped it and gave it credit for rescuing them from the land of Egypt. So obviously that ticks off God, and it also ticked off Moses. So Moses, Moses comes back from the, mount, from the mountain, sees that his own brother Aaron led in the effort to make this golden calf. He gets ticked off, and he actually throws the Ten Commandments down and smashes them. God punishes the people, and then Moses has to go back up to Mount Sinai where he gets Ten Commandments, second edition. <laughs> as well as a bunch of other instructions, including instructions on what is called the tabernacle. Now, here's what happens in terms of the tabernacle. God gives very specific instructions about this tent, this 
sanctuary, this meeting place. It starts in Exodus 25, verses 1 to 9. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. And these are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen. And it has to be blue, purple, and scarlet. So if you've got that orange yarn, that ain't going to do. He didn't want that. He wants purple, blue, and scarlet. He'll also take goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and here's what's going to happen. I will dwell among them. You hear what God just said? I'm going to live among you guys in the sanctuary that you're about to build for me. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So if you flip over then to chapter 26 of Exodus, and we're not going to read it this morning because we don't have time for it, there's actually a very detailed description of exactly what the tabernacle is supposed to look like. God says to Moses, I want you to build it exactly like this. It has the dimensions, it has the details, the decorations, the furniture that's going to be there, exactly what it's supposed to be. And here you're taking a look at, a, here's sort of an inside uh, the blueprint, so to speak, of what the tabernacle will look like. So you would enter right here, and you'd enter into what's called the outer court ha- courtyard, and there would be the altar that you would offer your sacrifices on, and then beyond that would be the, the water basin, and there'd be another door that you'd walk into what's called the holy place, and inside the holy place would be things like the table of showbread, a menorah, the altar of incense, and then the final and the holiest aspect of the tabernacle was the holy of holies. And that had a curtain, so you couldn't see in or go in, but on the other side of that curtain was the Ark of the Covenant, right? Have you ever heard of the Ark of the Covenant? Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? the movie, he melds his face. Okay, we'll come to that in just a moment. And so what happens is at the end of the book of Exodus, Moses inspects the tabernacle and notes this is exactly what God commanded. And then it says, oh yeah, here's an here's a artist rendering what probably the tabernacle looked like. Uh, and then at the end, it says, the glory of the Lord filled that tabernacle. Like the actual presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God filled the tabernacle. Here's the very, this is the end of the book of Exodus. Here's how it ends. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses couldn't even enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all the travels of the Israelites, because here's what's happening. The Israelites are going to travel a lot until they finally get the promised land, which will not happen until many, 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 many years later. And so the tabernacle would be picked up and moved, and all the furniture would be portable, and it would be moved, and they would go hiking and camping for decades. Anyhow, in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, that's when they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out. They just stayed there in the camp until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and then at night there was fire that was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels. Tabernacle means tent or place of dwelling or even sanctuary. It was, for the Israelites, a sacred place where God chose to meet his people and the Israelites during the 40 years that they would wander in the desert under Moses' leadership. And it was the place where the leaders of the people came to worship and they offered their sacrifices, but it was mobile. 
meaning you could pack up this sanctuary, you could pack up this tabernacle, take all the furniture, and you could move it to whatever next location God wants us to go. And then when you pitched your, your, the tabernacle, the 12 tribes of Israel would camp around it. And there was a very specific order, and here you see kind of a schematic where in the very center would be the tabernacle, and then the tribe of Judah would be here, the tribe of Manasseh would be here, the tribe of Ephraim would be here, the tribe of Dan would be here, and they'd camp all around so they could see the tabernacle, which is at the center of their camp. But after the Israelites wandered throughout the wilderness, and then under the, the leadership of Joshua, they conquered the promised land, and their wanderings came to an end. And when their wanderings came to an end, it was also time for the tabernacle to find its resting place. And the location where the tabernacle finally found a permanent spot was in the town of Shiloh. In fact, it says in Joshua 18, verse 1, the whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The country was brought under their control. And so for the next 300 years, the tabernacle would rest in Shiloh. In fact, here's an aerial picture of Shiloh in Israel today and another picture where you could see some of the ruins. But for three centuries, those who were obedient among the tribes of Israel would come here to the tabernacle at Shiloh for the annual feasts. This is the spot where Joshua would divide up the land among the 12 tribes. This is where the story last week where Hannah prayed and asked God to give her a son. This is where she did that, and this is where Samuel, the boy Samuel, would stay and minister in the tabernacle in Shiloh. And from, time, uh, from the time Israel entered the land until the time of Samuel, the Ark of God's Covenant remained in the tabernacle at Shiloh. But here's what else the Old Testament prescribes. There are feasts and there are festivals that everyone needs to abide by. In fact, there are three where every Israelite male, and just the male was required, but every Israelite male had to go to the tabernacle in Shiloh to offer sacrifices or to participate in the feast. And so the first was the, the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we also call Passover. The next is the Feast of Weeks, which we also call Pentecost. And then finally, the Feast of the Tabernacle. And so three times in the year, every male in Israel would have to go to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, and offer their sacrifices, right? So Shiloh was a happening place. And when you got to Shiloh and to the tabernacle, you would give your sacrifice to the priests to be offered on the altar of God, which was there in the tabernacle. Now, priests all came from the tribe of Levi. In fact, they were descendants of Aaron, who was Moses' brother. They did not have their own land. So after the Israelites conquered the promised land, every one of the tribes of Israel got a piece of land for themselves except for the Levites. And the reason why is because the Levites were going to serve as priests. But in compensation, what God said to the priests are, you could have a portion of all the sacrifices and offerings of Israel. Now, it wasn't a free-for-all. They could just take whatever they wanted to. There was a prescribed way in which the priests were going to receive some of the sacrifices and some of the offerings for them to live on since they didn't get any of the land. And so that's the background between because of tabernacle, sacrifices, and the priesthood. Now, where we left off last week was the little boy Samuel was dropped off at the tabernacle where Eli the priest was serving. So here's where it picks up. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Eli's sons were scoundrels, which we don't use that word very much anymore, but I kind of like it. They were scoundrels. Some of your translations will say they were wicked men. And so Eli, for whatever priest, he might have been good priest, but his kids were not. So they were scoundrels. In fact, it closes in verse 12 by saying they had no regard for the Lord. Listen to that phrase. Not even just like, eh, they got a little, like, they had no regard for the Lord. Verse 13, 
Now it was the practice of priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or pot and whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. And this is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. So you see what's happening? The priest is getting their share. So they get a three-pronged fork and whatever's boiling there in the pot or the cauldron, they would stick the fork in and whatever they brought out is what the priest got to eat, right? So, you know, if it fell apart, and uh, you know, it'd be, you know, but that's, that's what they got. But even before the fat was burned, meaning they hadn't even started cooking it yet, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. Now, you see what just happened? They want some ribeye, and they like it medium rare. So don't cook it yet. We're going to take some from you right now. And what's happening is this is a violation of all the tenets in terms of what the priests were allowed to have. So they're actually stealing from the offering that was supposed to go to the Lord. So the Eli's sons would send their servants out to, to get raw meat so they'd come back and have a good cookout. If the person said to him, well, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. And if you don't, I'll take it by force. This son of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight. For they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Hear that language? Now, here's a pastoral tip for you. Don't ever treat the Lord's offering with contempt. It hacks them off. And it hacks them off here. And it's not because God is zealous for raw meat. Like, oh, man, I wanted that piece. Like, that's not, you know, like going to a Texas Roadhouse. Would you like to pick out your steak? You know what I'm saying? It's not like God's doing that and you're stealing my favorite portion of steak. It's not like, you know, when you go eat lunch with somebody and they don't order fries, but you did. And then during lunch they keep taking a fry. It's irritating, isn't it, right? So you're like, order your own fries. I mean, it's kind of, I portioned this out exactly as I wanted it, and I'm rationing out between a bite and a drink. Like, so I've got a whole method. Now you're taking my fries. It's not like that. It's not like God's thinking, oh, man, I wanted that piece. It's more like picture being a parent and your, and your child spends so much time on, like, a gift for you because it's Mother's Day or it's your birthday, or, and they put together a craft, or they just spend hours decorating and painting a picture, and then they come and present it to you, and they're so excited, right? I mean, this is from, it's from their heart. They can't wait to give it to mom. They can't wait to give it to dad. And even if the artistic ability is like kind of, you know, let's just be honest, right? But it's from your kid, which means, oh, it's going on in the refrigerator forever. And then you're going to put in a file somewhere in your house that you might have lost decades ago, but you still have every picture that, like, that's what happened. Or, or even if the craft comes, you're like, that's a bird? Oh, that's not, like, but it came from the hand of your child, right? It was a gift from them, from their little heart to you, and nothing was more precious. Now, could you imagine somebody stepping in and messing with that painting or that craft or that gift? Boy, there'd be some parental rage that would just rise up in each one of us. Like, nobody messes with my kid and what they try to give to me from their own heart. That's what's sort of happening with the offerings. These are the offerings from God's children and from God's people, offered from their own heart to God. And these numbskull scoundrels are actually sending their servants to steal what rightfully belongs to God, and it hacks God off. The Bible says they treated it with contempt. And what's even lower is they weren't even man enough to do it themselves. The Bible says they sent their did you notice that? They sent their servants to do their dirty work. But what you need to see here in chapter 2 and 3 is there's going to be a shift of focus. Eli's sons will be one focus, and then the boy Samuel. Eli's sons, the boy Samuel. Focusing now on Samuel, verse 18, here's what happens next. 
But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. And each year his mother made him a little robe, a little robe, and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. So you remember that last week where she prayed, asked God for her son, God gives her a son, and her promise says, If you give me a son, I will give him back to you, and he will serve you in your house in the tabernacle all the days of his life. And she fulfilled her vow. After she finished breastfeeding, she gave Samuel up. And so when Eli sees Elkanah and Hannah come to the tabernacle, he gives them a blessing. May the Lord give you more kids in return for the one that you handed over and has now been living and serving here in the tabernacle. And so he gives this blessing. May the Lord give your children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home, and the Lord was gracious to Hannah, and she gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Right? She had five more kids. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. So we see here that God blesses Hannah with five more kids. Undoubtedly, she looked over at her counterpart, Penina, and thought, <laughs> that's all the years of taunting me. And we're watching Samuel grow up. And it says he does so in the presence of the Lord. Okay, scene shift back to Eli's sons. Verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meetings. So we just get a list of other things that they're doing, right? They're scoundrels. And now they're sleeping with the women there at the entrance to the tent of meetings. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the good Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord... Who will intercede for them? His sons, however, being the scoundrels they are, did not listen to their father's rebuke. Notice this. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. It was the Lord's will to put them to death. And it closes in verse 26 that the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Now, this is a pretty intense section. We learn that Eli, as the father, tries to rein his sons in and tries to rebuke them, but they don't listen. And it says the reason why is because God wants to kill them. Like, he wants to smite them. And so this goes back to larger theological, philosophical questions we can ask. Like, so did God harden their hearts so that they would not hear his father, their father's rebuke? Or were their hearts already hard and God used that to make sure that he was able to smite them in the end? It doesn't really say. Just a simple reading is, nope, God wants these two scoundrels dead. They're supposed to be serving the people and God as priests. And instead, they're deceiving and they're robbing the people and showing contempt for the Lord's offering. And then by contrast, look at Samuel. He continues to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Which, by the way, that's the same phrasing that's used for Jesus in the Gospels when he's growing up. What we know is God loves Samuel and the people love Samuel. And what comes next then, and this is the end of chapter 2. We won't read it together just in terms of just saving some time. But here's how chapter 2 closes. It says, a man of God, and it doesn't identify him, we don't know who it is, shows up to Eli and says, hey, God is judging your house and is going to bring it to an end. What that means is none of your offspring will see old age. They will all die in their youth. Not just your two sons, your entire house, your entire family line. In fact, your two sons, to show that God's word is true and that what I'm saying to you is from God, your two sons, the priests, will die on the same day. That's how you know that uh, God, this is a word from the Lord. Furthermore, he will raise up a new priest who will serve in your place who actually has God's heart and mind. Then we get to chapter 3. Here's chapter 3, verse 1. 
the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. And in those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. And this is interesting, isn't it? You catch a glimpse of the silence of God. Now, it's about to be interrupted, but it was the nation's reality. God wasn't speaking to them. And it doesn't tell us why. And we could speculate all sorts of things. This is the days of the judges. How great could those have been? Maybe Israel was not faithful. Maybe they weren't obedient. All we know is, for whatever reason, God's been pretty quiet. And nobody around here says, have you heard from God? No. Have you heard from God? No. Do you have a vision from the Lord? No. I don't have one either. And I just want to say that what Israel feels in its collective reality will sometimes be your individual reality. If you haven't experienced it yet, you probably will in your lifetime. There are times that God is just silent. And I don't know why. And I can't explain why you keep praying and you're asking for this and you're seeking this and you're seeking a word. You need a vision. You need a, a revelation, something going in your life. And, and you're listening and you don't hear anything in return. That just seems like God is silent. And we know that relationships thrive on good communication, and nothing is more frustrating even in our spiritual life when it feels like, I don't think God's talking to me. And so it's one thing when you just don't hear from Him. It's another when you're asking questions, and it feels like in return you're getting the silent treatment. No one likes that, and it's discouraging. And I don't have an answer for all of it, and I can't help but imagine it was a discouraging time for Israel. There's not many visions taking place until verse 2 of chapter 3. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was laying down, lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Which, by the way, the ark is in the Holy of Holies, so I don't know if Samuel's actually sleeping in the Holy of Holies or just close by outside of the curtain, but it just says he was by the ark of the covenant. And verse 4, then the Lord called Samuel. Now, the ark will be a prominent theme in the life of Samuel. It gets mentioned here probably in foreshadowing what is to come. But if you know anything about Old Testament theology, the ark of the covenant in the Holy of Holies was the literal resting place of God. His Shekinah glory rested on the ark. In fact, here's an artist's rendering of what it probably looked like if you didn't see the movie. Uh, the, the, there's two cherubim with wings that are pointed towards each other, and in the center is what was called the mercy seat, and at the mercy seat is where God himself dwelt. He was present in this most holy piece of furniture in the tabernacle, which was kept behind a curtain in the Holy of Holies. And you know what was inside the ark? Like if you lifted up the chest, you know what was inside there? The Ten Commandments, like the ones that Moses got from Mount Sinai, the second edition. Uh, manna, they ate manna in the wilderness, so that was preserved in a jar. And, and Moses' brother Aaron had a rod, a staff, that miraculously would bud, and that's in there as well. Anyhow, out of nowhere, God calls Samuel. Verse 4. Then the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. And again the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. My son, Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back and lie down. Now there's lots of points of interest to me in this. God keeps talking to Samuel, but Samuel doesn't recognize God's voice which is interesting, isn't it? Because in the movies, every time God speaks, what does it sound like? Morgan Freeman. <laughs> so clearly, God does not really sound like, I just got this loud, booming, deep voice. It's unmistakable. It's earth-shattering. No, like he kind of sounds like Eli. In fact, Samuel confuses the voice for being Eli's voice. So Samuel keeps getting up and going to Eli and saying, yeah, you called. And Eli keeps saying, no, I didn't. Go back to bed. And I don't know why God didn't just say, Yo, Samuel, 
it's me, God. But in the next verse, we learn why Samuel didn't recognize that voice, because in verse 7 it says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Now he grew up in the presence of the Lord. He's been in this tabernacle his entire life. But God has never spoken to him, at least audibly, as he is now. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So he doesn't recognize his voice, but he's about to. Here's what happens next in verse 8. A third time, the Lord called Samuel. Samuel gets up. He went into Eli and said, here I am. You called me. Then Eli realized it was God who was calling the boy. So Eli says to Samuel, go back and lay down. And if he calls you, just say this. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and laid down in his place. Now, notice that Eli kind of mentors the boy into knowing and recognizing and knowing how to respond to the voice of the Lord. Eli knows, ow, this is God talking to the little boy. Perhaps Eli is familiar with God's voice and God's ways, and out of that familiarity, guides Samuel in what to do if God calls again. So here's what happens next, verse 10. The Lord came and stood there calling, which I think is interesting, that metaphor, right? So God showed up, he just stands there, calling at the other time, as the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And here's what God says to Samuel. See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God, and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Now, if I'm Samuel... I'm going to be like, what? You, this is the first thing you're going to talk to me about is my, my mentor, Eli, who he most undoubtedly probably loves. You're going to bring judgment on his house, like not even a positive, hey, Samuel, you're great. You're destined for good things. We love you. It's going to be great. I mean, no, this is a, his first words are a judgment against Eli. And we don't know how old Samuel is here. The Jewish historian Josephus said he was 12 years old, but we don't really know. He's at least young enough where he's referred to as a boy still in the text. And what's interesting is God's first message to Samuel is against his mentor, Eli. He reiterates his judgment against the house of Eli. And I can't help but imagine Samuel probably knows. I mean, he spent his whole life in the house of the Lord. He sees what's going on. He knows what Eli's sons are like. He's aware of their treatment of the offerings and sacrifices. He probably knows all about their scandals. I mean, all of Israel knows about their scandals. I'm imagining even as he's a kid, he lives in the tabernacle. He knows what's going on, but I think he loves Eli. But what do you do with a message like that? God doesn't tell him to do anything. God just says, this is what I'm going to do. So verse 15, Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and he was afraid to tell Eli the vision. But Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. What was it he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Now, here we find out that Samuel is afraid to tell Eli, and who wouldn't be? But Eli says, boy, I will beat you if you don't tell me what God said. So Samuel tells him. And Eli's response is amazing. He is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. Now, I don't know if this is a prayer of exhaustion, like Eli's old, he's now blind, his sons are scoundrels, just end it now, Lord. I mean, I don't know if that's what it's like. 
or if this is a prayer of faith, he is the Lord. I trust him in all things, including in judgment and the termination of my house. But Eli doesn't beg God. He doesn't plead. Simply let it be. And here's how our story ends. Verse 19. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. Let me repeat that. He let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now, what we'll discover next week is Samuel is about to launch into a period of great leadership, perhaps one of the greatest leaders that Israel will ever know. But the reason why will be because he'll be known for his words. Listen to this phrase again. He, meaning God, let none of his words fall to the ground. If Samuel said it, you could take it to the bank. Everything he said was a reflection and an overflow of his conversations with God. And over and over again, you knew that you could trust it. All of Israel recognized that Samuel's words had weight. You were bombarded by messages all the time, all around you. So many so that your brain actually has filters that ignores, you wouldn't be able to take it all in. Your brain actually filters out most of the messages that are bombarding you, only allowing in what is it you can actually process. But words are everywhere. People are always talking. I'm talking, ranting all the time, billboards, magazines, social media, TV. It's everywhere. And it's easy over time to be careless then with words because there's so many of them, to not take any of them very seriously, for them to lose weight and to lose meaning. But there's an ethic that we have as followers of Jesus that we want to have what Samuel has. We want our words to matter and to have weight that what we say you could take to the bank. That because of our words, God doesn't let any of them fall to the ground void and empty. To recognize there's power behind them. I, listen, I want to have the kind of power behind my words that I could be talking to a third grader, a little third grader who's going through all sorts of life circumstances and difficulties, like truly got the raw end of the deal in regards to life opportunity. And because of that, they can't even imagine tomorrow because of what's going on today. And I want to be able to speak hope and life and future orientation in such a way that causes that third grade kid to, to all of a sudden hope again, to dream again, to have a vision again of what life could be like, a future orientation. And why? Because there's weight to my words that bring life, and God doesn't let any of them fall to the ground empty or void. Teachers in the room, listen, could you imagine what it would be like to have such weight to your words that you could be standing in front of your class with all of those life circumstances going on? that you're very much aware of what's going on in their home or in their family life or with this particular situation, but you're able to speak words with such power that it brings hope and healing and life because God doesn't let any of your words fall to the ground empty and void. Or could you imagine those of you who are nurses in the room and you're dealing with families who are in the midst of crisis and anxiety and suffering and pain but what comes out of your mouth has such power behind it that you begin to speak words of hope and of comfort and of peace and of healing. And it's like looking back, it's like a balm and a time in their life when they need it the most that God didn't let any of your words fall to the ground, but rather use them to bring about life and peace and blessing. 
Or imagine for those of you who are social workers in the room or maybe police officers to be the kind of person that when you speak, it brings life. It brings a vision to a new path for others who might be in poverty and can't even imagine. Or maybe your words de-escalates a situation, individuals who are in conflict or in crisis, because when you speak, it has authority, and it makes things happen, not because of the tone of your voice, because of the God who's behind your words, that He won't let any of them fall to the ground. And I could go on in regards to other occupations and life experiences, even just as a parent, mom, dad, listen, don't you want to have the kind of power behind your words that when you speak to your kids and to their future, it brings life? That things really change. That when they're in the midst of depression or sadness or hopelessness or despair or even making life changes, that are, oh no, that you're able to say something. It's not just from you, it's the overflow of your time with the Lord that He gives you words of life that when you speak them, He makes sure that none of them come back empty or void, that none of them hit the ground. Proverbs 18, verse 21 the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat. It's fruit. What you want is to be like Samuel, one who hears God. And let me then encourage you to follow his... Watch what Samuel does. He rests and he sleeps in the very presence of the Lord. He sleeps by the Ark of the Covenant, and this will be the context in which you will first hear the voice of God. I would just say to you, carve out time, and even just 15 minutes to carve out some time and space to be in the presence of the Lord. Maybe this is your quiet time, or maybe you're walking by the river walk, or maybe you're hiking somewhere, or maybe you're on a jog on a trail. Maybe this is where you put in worship music in your car. It could be all sorts of different places and different contexts, but you know that this is the place and the proximity where you are in the presence of God, and you can hear Him. You get in that presence. And listen, just like Samuel, when he first heard God's voice, didn't understand it was God's voice, do not hesitate to seek help and guidance and mentoring from others who hear God's voice, who can help guide you and say, no, that thing that you keep hearing in your spirit, that small voice that keeps nagging at you, that thing, that, that vision that keeps coming to your mind, that's from the Lord. And then make yourself obedient. Like Samuel, simply say to God, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And you're seeking a vision from God, a word from God, where His voice and your heart are so enmeshed in such a way that when you speak, it's in the overflow of the conversations you've had with the Lord. And then what happens in time, you recognize that voice. You know its tone, you know its quality, you know its character. Jesus gives us an illustration in the Gospel of John. In fact, in Jesus' day, shepherds, because of the lack of grazing ground, shepherds, different shepherds would often take multiple flocks and they'd all graze in the same area. But when a shepherd needed to move on, each individual shepherd had a unique call that when they gave it, only their sheep knew. And so if I were a shepherd, I would give my unique call, and the sheep that belonged to me would follow me, and they would not follow after any other call because they didn't recognize that voice. In that analogy, Jesus says in John 10, verse 2 to 5, the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Could you imagine living a life like Jesus did, where you are so engaged and so in tune with the heart and will of God that when you speak, your words are literally an overflow of your conversation with him? Could you imagine having power in your words to such a degree that when you speak them, God ensures that none of them ever fall to the ground empty, void, or unfulfilled. Let me challenge you, make as a goal in your life, to be one who hears from God. A Samuel.
May you hear the voice of the Lord. And as you speak it out loud as a blessing for life for others, may they find life, peace, and blessing. Amen.